0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Dr. Kaylin Kretz, who's an assistant professor at the School of Sustainability in the College of Global Futures at Arizona State University. Kaylin's research focuses on policy questions related to aquatic and terrestrial species management. Before heading to ASU... Kaylin was a fellow here at Resources for the Future, and she remains an RFF University fellow today. So Kaylin and I are going to be talking about seafood mislabeling. Seafood is the most globally traded food commodity, as I learned from reading Kaylin's work, with supply chains that can be particularly hard to trace, and concerns over the mislabeling of seafood products, either by source or even by type, have grown in recent years. So Kalin and a number of co-authors published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in late 2020 that provided a deep and empirical look at the scale of the problem here in the United States, showing systematic evidence of environmental impact from these mislabeling occurrences. So we'll talk about the paper findings, including the research team's ideas for mitigating some of the challenges that they identified. Stay with us. Hi, Kaylin. Welcome to Resources Radio. It's very nice to hear your voice.
1: Yes, it's wonderful to chat with you today, Kristen.
0: So uh, before we take our deep dive, and yes, that is an ocean pun, uh, into the world of seafood mislabeling, let's talk a bit about your research interests more generally. I think they're certainly familiar to those of us and our listeners who followed your work here at RFF, but I'd love to hear what you're working on now, and maybe you could say a little bit about how you started working on species management generally, and then on fisheries in particular.
1: Yeah, great. Thanks, Kristen. So I think really my entry into the world of environment and resource economics, this is taking me a ways back. It came from a freshman seminar in the Environmental Studies Department at Dartmouth when I was there, and it was actually a required seminar. And uh, I think we ranked choices. I may not have got my first choice, but in the end, I think this has ended up being a great experience and good home for me. While I was an undergrad, I also did some uh, research assistant work for a Dartmouth faculty member, Karen Fisher Vanden, on water quality trading markets. And so I think that sort of experience really helped solidify a lot of my interests related to resource and environmental policy. And then I guess uh, related to how did I get into fisheries and what am I working on now? Most of my work has a really applied focus related to policy and management. I think that's been a really a theme throughout my career and is something that, to a certain extent, I think is is still evolving. So for example, uh, a lot of my current work considers economic efficiency, which I'm sure folks at RFF are really familiar with. But a lot of what I'm doing is thinking about other factors too. So today we'll talk about environmental outcomes. And I have other work that is thinking about social and community outcomes. And so I think big picture, what's guiding my work right now is the idea that for us to generate positive change in the environment and resource space, we really need to be thinking about uh, and collaborating in an interdisciplinary way. So a lot of my current work relates to challenges arising from climate change. And when I think about climate change, I'm sure Kristen, you know this well, no one person or discipline I think is going to be able to on their own figure out the path forward. So I think this is just a good example of where we really need interdisciplinary work and thinking. Uh, And really similarly, this mislabeling work and a lot of other fishery challenges are other cases where I think there's a lot of work that we need to do to improve sustainability, and I'm excited to be involved in it.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Well, so seafood mislabeling is I'll be totally candid, not a term that I was particularly familiar with, although, you know, you and I kind of set the wheels in motion for a potential podcast recording a while ago. So it's it's something that um, I was introduced to through your work, and it would be great to just kind of start with the basics of the problem. And when so when we're talking about seafood mislabeling, what does that mean and and what forms does it take?
1: Yeah, so it's a pretty broad term in some sense. It is a term that we chose to use because it encompasses both deliberate, so this would be fraudulent mislabeling, or accidental mislabeling. And so I I guess the other thing I want to highlight for listeners is what we mean when we say mislabeling in terms of what consumers experience. So instead of getting the product that you expect, so the product on the label, We're really interested in understanding these cases where the consumer actually receives something different, which we call a substitute product. So throughout the paper and our conversation today, I'm going to be using those terms a lot. The expected product, so that's what's on the label. That's what you expect to get. And the substitute product, so that's what you actually get.
0: Hmm, Fascinating. Okay. Um, And what sort of types of mislabeling are there?
1: This is a really good question. I think you could talk to different people and they can give you a lot of different examples. But uh, within my own work, and I would say probably broadly for the team that I've been working with, there are a few types that really emerge. And so one, which is the focus of the paper that uh, we'll talk more about uh, coming up, is species. So this is when you expect one species, but you actually get another. Other examples are uh, you might expect a product that was caught in the United States. So there might be something on the label related to the origin of the fish product. And instead, it could be some from somewhere else. And then a third example is when maybe the label indicates something about the production method. So maybe there's information about a product being wild caught, but it's actually farmed. So it's produced via aquaculture. So uh, I think this idea of are you getting exactly what is on the label or not and if it's no it's mislabeling but there's a lot of different attributes that are on those labels and if folks don't believe I I encourage you next time you're at the grocery store to to have a look at all the
0: different (laughs) labels
1: that are out there right
0: sure right and so I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more but I am curious about kind of Why this happens, right? Why does mislabeling happen? Um, You mentioned that sometimes it's fraudulent, sometimes it's accidental. Can you say a little bit more about kind of how some of these mislabeling occurrences come to be? Yeah,
1: let me touch a little bit on the fraudulent piece. And then uh, I think I'll talk a little bit more about seafood supply chains, um, as well as we dig deeper into the paper. But big picture, I think most people can imagine a retailer or somewhere on the supply chain, somebody has some kind of economic motivation. So I think that one would probably resonate a lot with the, the listeners. So you can imagine somebody deciding to substitute in a lower value product for that higher value product. So I think certainly there's a a motivation in that sense. One of the other motivations that I'm really interested in and I think is a big motivator for the the paper we'll talk about is that mislabeling can be sort of an entry point or a, a way to reach markets when product is illegally caught. So, Uh, There's a term IAU, which we often use in the fisheries space to talk about um, catch that's not reported, that's not regulated. And so uh, oftentimes there's regulations, policies in place to try to keep these products out of certain markets like the U.S., the EU. But mislabeling is one way that you may be able to get some of those products uh, into these markets. And then, Kristen, I guess, you know, this kind of leads nicely into big picture, what we are trying to do and some of the motivation for this paper more broadly. So going into this paper, we realized that a lot of the work in the mislabeling space had actually been done by scientists who are experts in the technology to test fish products and that nobody had looked really systematically about the potential impacts of uh, mislabeling. And so myself and uh, one of, I would say, the primary collaborators on the paper, Josh Donlan, he's trained as an ecologist, we came up with this idea to use the best available data and information to try to determine whether, on aggregate, there's evidence that mislabeling is having a negative environmental impact. And so kind of going back to that idea of, well, what are the motivations for mislabeling? We can conjecture, they might even make sense, but we were really interested in exploring, well, from an empirical standpoint, do we see evidence that these could be, these motivations could be leading to, in the case of this paper, environmental uh, impacts? Mm-hmm.
0: Did you go in with an, with an intuition of whether or not that would be the case? Or, or were you really just kind of trying to look at the question fairly agnostically of, you know, we know this is happening, but we're, we're not actually sure whether it's a big deal or not?
1: That's a really good question. So, you know, the, the evidence prior to us starting this work was pretty anecdotal. So it was sort of species by species one paper that came out maybe about a year before ours that tried to do something a little bit more systematic, but there really wasn't that much out there. And so, you know, I think based on the anecdotal evidence that we thought this this could be something that is um, generating substantial impacts. And then you think about the motivations and you think, you know, I think there are incentives for this to be a- occurring, but we weren't sure. And we felt like at a minimum, we wanted to hopefully start changing the dialogue a little bit within this space to highlight the, the potential issue that exists here and to start thinking more about solutions. So we, th- we thought sort of regardless of maybe what, what we thought was going on or not, there still wasn't uh, an analysis that was uh, systematic enough that we had seen at least to, uh, to draw attention to this issue, which we're hoping to do with this paper.
0: So let's let's go back to the supply chains for a second, because you mentioned that earlier. And I know that, you know, in the paper itself, you note that supply chains for seafood products are often, I think the, the words you use specifically are complex and opaque. So those are challenging things to have in one supply chain. And I, I'm guessing that that's one of the contributing factors that actually allows this seafood mislabeling to happen. So can you say just a little bit more about what makes those supply chains complex, um, particularly non-transparent? And, and I guess, a, you know, a kind of a personal curiosity question, but are, are most of us who eat seafood, are we likely to have purchased or eaten something mislabeled at some point?
1: So first, there's a very, very robust uh, global market for seafood. And so this paper is focused on the U.S. because we have really high quality data. And I'll talk a little bit about um, that as we dive deeper into the paper. But let's take the United States, for example. So my co-author on this uh, paper that we're talking about today, Jessica Geppert, she led an effort to estimate what the percentage uh, is that we import. And so there's uncertainty, and you can go check out her paper if you want to know more about it. But we know that the percent that we import is very high, so it's around 65%. So just big picture, if we look at this from the US perspective, a lot of our seafood that we eat, it's imported. The other thing that I think leads to these complicated supply chains is that there are a lot of points along the supply chain, uh, from harvest to consumption. And so we have an entire harvest sector made up of uh, fishers, often many people on fishing vessels, the product then needs to get processed, quite often gets exported and imported. So there can be multiple middlemen in uh, along the supply chain. And then we can think about just the diversity of retailers that exist. And so, you know, ultimately this product is going to show up in a grocery store or a restaurant. And throughout that supply chain, there are a lot of different individuals and organizations that have control over that product. And so there are a lot of different points where that product could potentially be mislabeled. So even accidentally, so, you know, certainly not all of this mislabeling is fraudulent. Um, It's very easy in the harvesting and processing sectors in particular to just mix product up.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, I'm sitting here thinking to myself about kind of the difference between seafood and say, you know, beef or chicken, some other protein that we consume here in the United States. You're not going to confuse chicken for beef, but I can imagine that there are (laughs) enough similarities between the look, the, uh, just the, the texture, you know, there are ways that um, these errors could in fact creep into the supply chains much more easily. Is that, yeah, is that probably true. Absolutely, yeah. Kristen.
1: Okay. And let me kind of let me chime in here with the technical term we would use. We just think about different product forms, and so different product forms are at different risk of mislabeling. So you can think about if you're looking at a whole fish, you really have a high probability of differentiating right, between yeah. right different species. <laughs> sure, yeah. But once you're looking at something like a fillet, yeah. or when we're thinking about ground up uh, fish, if we're thinking about um, You know, things that have been breaded, (laughs) that's a lot harder, right? Yeah, yeah, okay,
0: um, all right. For sure. Okay, yeah, all right, so complex, definitely complexity here, sure.
1: Yeah, let me come back. I know you asked me a second question, so let me get to that one. So have we eaten mislabeled seafood? So I want to talk a little bit about uh, U.S. consumption and kind of tying that in with individual consumption. So one of the big points of our paper is – Uh, that historically, when research was done, it was on this kind of species-by-species basis. So one thing that emerged for us is that you as an individual or us as a country, we might consume something very infrequently, but it might have a really high mislabeling rate. And so, for example, uh, red snapper is something which has a very high mislabeling rate. Um, Often it's farmed tilapia or other snappers. And that's kind of one way we could think about mislabeling. Oh, no, that rate is so high. But on the other hand, another way that we can encounter mislabeled products is that there's a lot of products that we eat a lot. And we might encounter a mislabeled product, even if the rate is low, because we just eat so much of it. And so this other nuance, this is one thing we really wanted to kind of pick up on this within this paper. So if you eat a large quantity or if we as a country consume a large quantity, even if that mislabeling rate is low, the quantity of mislabeled product could be high. And we think that's really important. And so an example of this case is white lake shrimp. um, And these are often actually things like giant uh, tiger prawn. So... Can I offer just one more example? I love the examples. Yeah, these are great. Okay. So I I thought, I I took a look at our data and I came up with one for the D.C. listeners. (laughs) Okay,
0: okay.
1: So close to home in D.C., folks might be familiar with local blue crab. And if you talk to fishers and if you talk to folks in the region, there's a recognition within the fishery sector that often this local blue crab is not actually local blue crab, what you're seeing it is swimming crab. So that's a swimming crab from Indonesia is a pretty common substitute and something that we saw within our data as well.
0: Fascinating. Kaylin, I am very cognizant that I could ask you many, many questions. Um, so, but let's let's dig into the research a little bit more and kind of get to the meat of things before I go on and on about tiger prawns here. So, um, so you've said a little bit about you know what you and your co-authors were investigating and what you were trying to fill and kind of the research gap that that you had identified here. Um, can I can I start by asking a question about data and what data you actually used in investigating these questions? I have to say I find that fascinating. How did you how did you know what was being mislabeled and how did you find the data that you needed to really look at it systematically?
1: Yeah, so first, let me very precisely state what we started with as a research question. And this is, I guess, a little bit on the technical side, but I think it's important. So Our listeners love technical. So we framed this around, do enabling conditions exist in the U.S. for mislabeling to result in negative impacts on marine population and or support consumption from poorly managed fisheries? And so we're using that terminology, enabling conditions, because we didn't actually go out and test the whole universe of seafood in the U.S., that would be prohibitively expensive.
0: <laughs> that sounds like a large task. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we took more of an economist approach, which is we're going to use the best available data, and we're going to try to make sense out of it. And so what, what we did, and I have to acknowledge a lot of research assistants and interns who are co-authors on this paper. So this is a very generous we, because a, a lot of folks did a lot of work, not only acquiring data from different sources, but then trying to link it all together. So we use data uh, from NOAA Fisheries on the trade side, FAO uh, production data. We use more technical information like conversion (laughs) rates from raw to processed fish product. And then we use two other sources that I think are most visible and that uh, probably listeners will be most interested in. The first thing that we used is Seafood Watch fisheries ratings. So these are ratings that Seafood Watch assigns to different fisheries throughout the world. And then we used the best available mislabeling data. And so let me clarify a little bit. So like I said, we couldn't go out and test all of the products in the United States. And so my co-author, Josh Donlin compiled and published in Biological Conservation the most comprehensive data set of results of testing of seafood products that exist to date. And so basically what he did was he put together from these variety of different journal articles and white paper sources, a list of the expected species. So what's on the label and the substitute species. So what is uh, actually being consumed? And so we used that. So it's the best available data. Uh, on mislabeling. And of course, it's not comprehensive. We could have a whole nother podcast about how I would optimally design a sampling program to learn more. But this is, and just to kind of tie this back around, that's why we did frame the question like we did. So we're trying to understand whether enabling conditions exist. So we can't say precisely that piece of seafood is mislabeled. But as we created this data set, we can say sort of as a whole, we find that uh, enabling conditions do exist um, for seafood mislabeling to be to be generating these impacts and of course, others can dive in more if anybody wants to take on this large scale sampling project mm-hmm.
0: and just just to put a finer point on it when you when you talk about the data set that that um, Josh Donlin put together. This is that kind of scientific testing process that you were talking about, right? Where someone's actually sampling on some, I guess, genetic basis, sort of what this product is versus what this product is. Is that, yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yep. And let me just kind of add as well. And there, like I mentioned earlier, there are groups that are doing this to test their technology. And that often was going to show up in the academic literature. But there are other groups like Oceana who are doing this to raise awareness or have worked on this to raise awareness. And then you can, the other place that you'll see this is often the popular press. So if you live in a large city, you may be able to Google around. It seems like a popular thing for newspapers to publish an article related to, say, local sushi restaurants and what the products actually are.
0: Interesting. Okay. So I'm going to turn or I'd I'd like to open this up to talk about findings. And I think there's a a richness to these findings that you are far better equipped to discuss. So what did you find?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and let me put my findings in sort of three different buckets here. Uh, So the first bucket, and this I actually think is, is probably the most important from a policy perspective. The substitute products tend to be imported. So what we see is that... When we compare the expected Versus the substitute products, expected products tend to be produced in the United States and substitute products tend to be uh, produced abroad. Now, this is really important when we think about things from more of a species population perspective and a management perspective, because here in the United States, we have some of the best managed fisheries that are generally well-regulated. So well-regulated from an environmental aspect, but also social aspects. So there's a big concern now in the fishery space related to slave labor uh, and more social types of outcomes as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, this is when we're talking about impacts overall. If you're moving production, or you know, products are coming from kind of a less regulated or less well managed place, um, that would increase the the impact level that we're talking about, right?
1: For sure. I I mean. I think, you know, it's a, it's probably a little bit more nuanced than that because we have to think about consumer behavior and sort of that counterfactual, um, if the products couldn't come into our market, where would they go? But for us, and this is back to this use of the term enabling conditions, we think that at a minimum, this is something we should be thinking more about and be concerned about. So yeah, so that's the first bucket of the results. Let me move on to the second one. The other thing that we found is that farmed products, so these are produced via aquaculture, are important to consider. And one of the things that we saw here is that there's actually a lot less data. There's been very little testing to differentiate uh, farmed versus not. And so our thought, uh, and really, I guess, our ability uh, vis-a-vis the data that we were able to find and collect, allowed us to say that around 40 percent Um, of our estimated mislabeled consumption, could involve an aquaculture product. So here, and I I think I would characterize this as really an area that could use more exploration, because from a big picture perspective, aquaculture products have a very different environmental impact than wild caught, almost sort of an apples to oranges.
0: Hmm, Okay.
1: Okay. So now let me talk about the third bucket of results here. So- The last analysis that we did is we took these expected and substitute pairs that are both from wild caught fisheries. And then what we did is we compared Seafood Watch scores between the expected and substitute to see whether or not the scores were higher or lower in the expected versus substitute fisheries. So these Seafood Watch scores are divided into four different criteria. And essentially what this allows us to do is talk about whether or not the expected or the substitute fishery performs better according to these metrics. So our four metrics that we used were the impacts on the target species, so what you're catching, the impacts on the other species. So this is something like, you know, bycatch as you're fishing. Do you disturb other species or populations? And then two fisheries management-related metrics, so management effectiveness of that target uh, species, as well as habitat and ecosystem um, effects, so a a sort of broader measure there. And what we found is very convincing evidence that, on average, the expected species score better in terms of each of these four different criteria.
0: Mm -hmm. So if you get what you think you're getting that expected product scores better in terms of these impacts on target species, other species, habitats, and management effectiveness. Is that right?
1: So big picture, Kristen, what we found is that on average, compared to the product on the label, these substitute products, they're from fisheries with less healthy stocks that generate greater impacts on other species. Similarly, these substitute products are from fisheries with less effective management and with policies that are less likely to mitigate impacts of fishing on habitats and ecosystems.
0: Hmm. Okay, this is great. And thank you for talking us through these findings. It's clear that um, you were able to look at a number of different questions as you sort of delved into this data. Uh, But you know, one thing that I've learned from working at RFF for many years is that um, research almost always begets more research, more questions. And so I'd love to know sort of how you're thinking about, about what you'd want to look at next that would continue to shed light on this topic. And then also, you know, you mentioned early on, and I, I'm sure our listeners would love to know too, about how you and your co-authors were perhaps thinking about solutions for some of the challenges that you identified, uh, given the, you know, the kind of range of factors at play, the range of ways that Seafood mislabeling can happen. I'm sure those solutions are not straightforward, but um, if there is a kind of a solution set that you thought about, I'd love to hear about that too.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, so one of the things that we're trying to do is understand the landscape of different bottom-up and top-down approaches to mitigate mislabeling. So this can be things like certification programs. So uh, Many people may have seen or heard of the MSC certification program. If not, you can find that in a grocery store as well. I mentioned Seafood Watch uh, rating. So this is the rating system that we used in our analysis. And it you could go online and you can download a scorecard for different fisheries. And so those might be more examples I would call bottom-up approaches that are targeted uh, more toward consumers and retailers. But then on the other hand, there are top-down approaches that we could take as well to mitigate mislabeling impacts. So one of the things, and I'll kind of combine this uh, with uh, what I'm working on now, but also one of the things I'm excited about as a potential solution is more unilateral traceability programs. So these are programs or policies that are regulating trade essentially so the us uh, recently implemented the seafood import monitoring program and this is an example so it's a large unilateral traceability program and we're now requiring additional documentation to better trace uh, fish product imports and it also supports inspection of some of the products that we import and so that yeah and that inspection could include um, so the testing perhaps yep. that we've talked about yep. yeah okay spot on yep mm-hmm. and so you know i think Personally, that the path forward here isn't to pick one, but it's some combination of these different mechanisms, uh, and that's something that uh, we sort of we talk a little bit about at the end of the paper, and we're we're working on following up on. Kristen, the other thing that I want to touch on in terms of paths forward here is technology and technological innovation. And so coming out shortly in the review of environmental economics and policy, myself, along with Linda Nespaken and Martin Quass, write a review article with a really a forward-looking perspective on what is the future of wild-caught fisheries. And one of the big things that we highlight is the potential for technology to transform supply chains. And so when I think about mislabeling, this is one of the places that I'm really excited about technology and uh, what's been happening recently. And so I think there's tremendous potential for technology to enable better monitoring, to decrease illegal fishing activity, and to improve traceability, which could um, reduce mislabeling.
0: Sure. And what sort of technologies are we talking about here?
1: So this can include on vessel cameras. So to actually monitor uh activities on boats, there's a big global fishing watch program that is monitoring where especially large fishing vessels are located. And then on the traceability side, I think there's there's a lot of work being uh done here related to how we can best essentially tag, electronically tag and monitor these products through the supply chain.
0: Interesting. Okay. Ooh, I find this all so fascinating. Um, I feel like the potential for technology to ameliorate many uh, impacts is always... Something very promising. Always something to watch. Um, I've also read that that's a very American thing to say, sort of believing in the promise of technology. But we're both <laughs> Americans, so we're we're allowed to.
1: Yes, blockchains will solve everything. <laughs>
0: that's right. So, um, well, Kayla, this has been so interesting. I I really do feel like we could do a whole another podcast on this because I don't know. I'm just sort of dripping with questions for you. But um, but thank you for this introduction. And yeah, with our limited time remaining, let me um let me move to top of the stack, our regular uh, closing feature. And so I'd love to ask you for your recommendations on good content, fish-related or otherwise. Um, So yeah, Kaylin, what's on the top of your stack?
1: And can I give you two, Kristen? One more fun and one... Okay. Sure. So my more fun one is like uh, many people, I adopted a rescue dog during the pandemic.
0: Oh, you got a pandemic (laughs) pet. That's great. Okay.
1: (laughs) Yes, I have a pandemic pet, Chase. Uh, My sister-in-law, Lisa, gave me a book, Inside of a Dog. To answer that question, which I think many of us have, what is he thinking right now? And how can I make his life better?
0: (laughs) That's so lovely. That must be the best kind of pet owner then, the kind who really wants to understand and care. That's great.
1: And then so my more serious recommendation is actually one that I feel like I'm behind the curve on, and maybe others are as well. I've, you know, I guess not been talking to as many people lately, but twice within the last couple months, people have Discuss this book as if everybody should know it. And so my second uh, thing that I'm reading right now is the Ministry for the Future.
0: Okay. well, Kaylin, those are great recommendations. Um I have a pet who I've had long before the pandemic, uh, but I'm sure I could learn something about his inner life. And yeah, and the Ministry for the Future also sounds fantastic. so so thank you again for coming on and talking with me today, and um, hope to talk to you again soon and
1: thank you, Kristen. This was really fun.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support Resources for the Future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.